This Sunday, we have a very special opportunity to hear from Pastor Paul Wilson. And Paul is our superintendent of the Pacific Southwest Conference, which means that we, as the Covenant Church, are a part of a collection of churches all over the U.S. And Paul, let me invite Paul to come on up here. Paul is the, um, the superintendent, which is just a fancy word for the team leader of all of the churches in California, in Nevada, in Hawaii, and Arizona? Is that right? Arizona. Arizona yeah. as well. Yes, but let sir. me say a little bit about this guy. So hey, let me just say something about Scott was saying this title, superintendent. Can't we do any better than that? That's what I say. It, it, it doesn't exactly emote, you know, warm feelings, right? It made me feel like I'm going to the principal's office. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I did a lot of, uh, a big portion of my ministry was in Alaska, and um, the Eskimo people gave me a new name. It was Sedonk, which means white whale. <laughs> and then they would say, oh, Paul, it's a name of great honor. A name of great honor. And then they would laugh, just like you're laughing now. And so... <laughs> You know, this man really needs no introduction. Why am I here? What am I doing? Anyway, would you welcome Paul Wilson to preach for us? Well, it is an honor to be with you. And I've had the uh, really, uh, you know, I'm going to say joy of getting to know Scott. I just love who God has created you to be. I love your humility. I love your love for God. I love your love for people and your church and just kind of being alongside of you the way you walk and wonder a bit. So let's give a hand for lead pastor over here. You've been uh, talking about the church and today we're going to go to a passage that if you've uh, been a Christian for a while, studied the Bible, you likely know this passage. We're going to say it out loud. Stand please. This is Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We better stop. Now, who was saying this? Jesus. Yeah. A lot of times when you're asked a question by the pastor, the right answer is Jesus, like 50% of the time. So you just spit it out. There's a pretty good chance you're right. This is Jesus. And so I'm operating under an assumption that Jesus, even though I'm in Silicon Valley here, by the way, I'm not that impressed with Silicon Valley. You want to know why? Because I was raised here. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was born and raised in Los Altos. I'm a graduate of Homestead High School. So you could say, I'm back in the hood. <laughs> but as smart as people are and as much as it's true that this area has been a center in innovation and even before the latest uh, 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 communication age, this area has been a center of innovation. Jesus is smarter than us. And when Jesus says something, we need to listen with more than our ears and listen with even more than our mind 
and more than our heart, but listen with the totality of who we are. Because Jesus is going to right here say what we're to do, what we're to be about, and I don't know you individually, but I know that you want your life to be a life of purpose. And so Jesus is going to speak into this. And in that, these are, um, the way Matthew records it, kind of last instructions. I think we need to really hear this. And so, and from the get-go, I want to say that if you find what he says is outside of your personal style, this is for you. This really is for you, what he's going to say. So now let's speak in the words of Jesus. We say them out loud together. Let's start at the beginning. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Please have a seat. I've been meditating on this. I've been, I've been thinking about this for, uh, for many years. I've, I've been seeking to live this out. And there are two words that are framing today. Um, this text for you and for me, for us together in, in this time. And I'm going to teach it a little different than I have before. But I'm, but I'm feeling these two words. And it's true identity. Jesus so much wants and came to help us understand our true identity. And when we make disciples, we speak into, we live into, we sing a song into the deepest longing of people. I have been so honored in my life. I have been called to serve um, in a variety of situations, very diverse ethnicities, first world and third world, a variety of incomes. Most recently, over the past uh, decade or more, I've been a pastor in Oakland and um, went to pastor a church that was over 100 years old, and it was a white church that... Um, by the end of our journey there, we looked like Oakland. We had uh, over 20 different first languages. And I, uh, I came to Christ as a 14-year-old at Homestead High School. Heard the gospel at a church called Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto. And my life was changed. My life was changed. And from that time till now... Everybody's, everybody's story is a little different. And oftentimes, it wasn't that I was a leader. I was an innocent bystander. But I have always been in a place where people were coming to Christ. And I've always been in a place where people were being called to serve him in ways that they couldn't describe. And I've always been in a place where people learn to love each other in new ways. And so this goes with, in lots of different places. And so I'm trying to, to think about, I need to be a good steward of 
what I have been able to observe, and I think that's a little bit of the reason why pastors and leaders um, are, have asked me in this next season of life, we have 160 churches, and to serve our, our churches and to serve our pastors and leaders, we have a, uh, a couple of conference centers. Have you guys been to Mission Springs? That's one of them. Um, another one, Alpine, Southern California. You may not know, but we are training right now in the Pacific Southwest Conference of the Covenant Church. We are training more Spanish-speaking pastors and leaders than anyone right now. We have, and it is a humble ministry. It's called Chet, but right now we have, um, it's just about 600 students who are mainly bivocational who are studying to be pastors and leaders in Spanish. And I can go on and on and on and on. And something we all know when it comes to making disciples, making disciples, followers of Jesus, has always been uphill, right? It's never been an easy thing. But do you think that perhaps in the last decade that the incline's gotten steeper? Most people in most places in America, in most churches, are saying that something has happened in the last several years. And we could begin to identify some of that, but we're seeing the incline get steeper. And for all the more reason, we have got to embrace the full gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot play now. If you are not a believer um, right now, I want to tell you, you were created to know God. And the longings inside of you really are met in the person of Jesus Christ. I said that this morning, making disciples, I'm thinking about true identity. And I, I, I want to go, some find this a, a tough passage to really live out. Not a tough passage to read, but to go and make disciples. You see the implications? Is if God calls you, you even go to a different nation. You even, you even go to people who live in your own community who look different than you. You even go and make disciples in what might be the scariest place for you, your own family. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But the, the, the implications are, are deep here. And so I can see that could be a hard one. But I want to share with you, I'm going to go right to the core. I want to share with you what I think is the toughest command in Scripture. It's Ephesians 5, verse 1. Uh, look in your Bibles at this. Ephesians 5, verse 1. I'm going to give you the first clause, and you can decide if this is the toughest one. Here it is. Be imitators of God. How about that? Sometimes don't you have difficulty being an imitator of a halfway decent person? So be imitators of God. And I want to tell you that when the Apostle Paul, and we believe that he was inspired by the Spirit of God, said that, he meant it. Be imitators of God. That whatever else we might say about our lives, here's the good news of Jesus. We're told that it's God's purpose to make us look more like his son. That that's his purpose. And at the end of our lives, at the end of history, he's going to have his way. Now, be imitators of God. But when I hear that, that just seems overwhelming. I almost want to stop. But 
The next clause is the chronological beginning. Be imitators of God as, and what's spoken of here is your true identity. This, what is going to be said next, is who you are. And I'm going to say, if we live out of other identities, we become cowardly, insecure, self-serving, with a stronger propensity towards perfectionism and addiction. Be imitators of God as, here's the good news, this is who you are, as dearly loved children. I bet we've got some pretty good resumes in this room. And, you know, if I was to ask you what's your identity, you might talk in terms of vocation, you might talk in terms of, which is a good thing, you might talk in terms of uh, role as husband or, or wife or, or parent or, or child, and all of those are important, but your true identity, who you are, is the best thing that you could ever dream of, the best name you could ever be called by, and that is you are true identity child of God. And when we live from that place, we live in peace. When Jesus says to go and make disciples, he's saying, when you go, I want to be a father to all these people. That's what God the Father says. I want to be a father to all these people. Let them know that I want them for my child. Now, that your true identity is child of God. That's not enough. And so there's an adjective um, added. I don't want to brag, but I was in AP English at Homestead High School. I, I know adjectives. You are a loved child. And here's something where we just have to trust the Bible. Sometimes when we think about God, we forget that God experiences emotion, but God-sized emotion. Even sometimes when we think that we're loved by God, we don't think about the emotional part, but God feels God-sized pain, real pain. And God feels emotion and emotional love. You know, the reason that we can experience pain and we can experience love is we're created in the image of God. But what God feels is a God-sized, grandiose love for you. And so, friends, I just want to say you've got to receive it. Before we can do anything, we need to receive. You are God's loved child. And since I was in AP English, I even know what an adverb is. And so you're more than a love child. What the, what the passage says, you are God's dearly loved child. That's who you are. That is your true identity. What I'm suggesting to you, it's going to be two things. One, when we live out of other primary identities, things go wrong and get confused for us. Two, we get to share with others that the creator of the universe wants them as dearly loved children. My wife and I, um, 
knew before we were married we would uh, be unable to have children biologically. But I read the Bible, and I read this stuff about Abraham and Sarah, and so I, I thought maybe there would be a miracle. But after 10 years, we didn't have any, uh, we didn't have any kids. And I, uh, it, it's, just, it's, it's just the way things happen sometime. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll share this in a little more personal way because my best friend lived in Sunnyvale. And my best friend was gay. And back when I learned of this, I graduated from Homestead in 1975. And I know a lot of you are saying, liar, liar. It had to be in the 90s you graduated from high school. (laughs) But, uh, you know, Steve's family was very... uh, um, uh, very athletic. Steve uh, had all kinds of opportunities to play football. I would have done anything to get to play college football. We went to UCLA together. I had no idea that uh, that he was uh, gay, and we didn't we didn't understand those things back then. Certainly, if we did, we we didn't talk about it. It wasn't until. Um, five years after I was married, my wife sat Steve and I down and said, you two guys need to have a talk. Hang on. There we go. You guys need to have a talk. And uh, she said, you know, Steve, this is obviously happening in your life, and you're not talking about Paul. And so, man, never been in such an uncomfortable thing. And I, I didn't know what to do. I, I believe, and our churches teach um, historic Christian marriage, that it's be, marriage is between a, a man and a woman, that sexual intimacy is to be experienced only inside of um, heterosexual marriage. And I, I believe all those things. I also believe that God lets us, gives us the opportunity. We get to love everybody. I believe that completely. And I just, I didn't know how to navigate all this. I just knew that God wanted me to love my friend. It was a few years later. He told me he had cancer. And I said, I can tell you're lying. You've got AIDS. And he did. And he was so ashamed and didn't want to want to share it. Steve's life, by the way, his, who he is, it's not, um, biographical, but he inspired the Tom Hanks character in the movie Philadelphia. So this is going way back. Tom Hanks got an Academy Award for the, for the role. I uh, am just feeling all this today because I did Steve's memorial service not far from here. Steve was a Christian. He believed God. He um, was like all of us, had all kinds of things going on. But he had a gift. He, he knew God loved him. I preached at his memorial service, one of the toughest things I've ever done. By the way, it was this really, really big event, and it was pretty amazing what God did in people's lives coming coming out of this. But there was a young woman there who uh, later got in, in touch with me, and she heard that the guy that spoke that day, and she was not a Christian, but that he and his wife couldn't have children and asked if we'd raise uh, the boy that would be born is our son. So I didn't plan on telling you any of that. I'm just thinking all that here today. So, um, so here's the deal. So you're now, it's, it's 19, uh, I can't remember, it's 1990-something. And 
uh, we're going to become parents. Inside my heart, I had this longing to be a father, just this huge, huge thing of what would life be like and to be a dad. And so this baby, she had, we'd met with this young woman, and do you get the significance coming out of like this deep pain? I'll, I'll say deep pain, one, just being childless, but deep pain of losing, you know, this friend that I just really loved and cared for. And so we, uh, uh, this baby's going to be born, and the baby's going to be born in Woodland, California. At the time, I was a pastor in rural Washington. And so... I, I, I went to the uh, supermarket one day, and they had this magazine, and it was all about babies. And when you're a guy, you're a little bit embarrassed, but I got that magazine. I, and I went home, and I read it, and you know what it said? Sometimes babies are born a month early. I read this in the magazine. So we were told the baby's supposed to be born in the beginning of September. And I told Kathy, you know, this baby could be born early. Kathy's my wife. And I, I said, we, we got to be ready to go. And so um, I, I had her pack her suitcase. I had my suitcase packed, and we had them in the trunk of the car. And I just started driving her crazy. Because every time the phone would ring, I knew that this was the phone call, that I was going to become a father. And by the way, Kathy would become a mother. But I was going to become a father. This was the big <laughs> event. Well, all August, Kathy has to go to the trunk of the car to get her underwear. And she's just really not happy. <laughs> So we get a call in the beginning of September, and it, 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 the baby's coming. Drive down I-5, fast as fast as you can be. And, I'll, and I'd never paid more than 100 bucks for a car. So I, I, but the car makes it, and right when we get to the hospital, the, the young lady is, is uh, coming out the front door. It was gas. <laughs> okay, I don't, I don't, they didn't cover that in the magazine. I didn't read anything about that. My sister uh, just said, Paul, you can't drive this car back up. They live in Portola Valley. They don't have a whole lot of $100 cars in Portola Valley. She said, take our Volvo. So I drove the Volvo back up on the... Um, on uh, all September, uh, we don't get any calls, don't get any calls, don't get any calls. Finally, um, October 3rd, we get a call. And I lived in a rural community that did not have postal service, but it had a post office. Everybody went to the post office to get your mail. And if uh, in that kind of community, that is better than uh, any social media today, is a post office where you can learn other people's business. <laughs> so uh, the, the phone call came. Kathy got the phone call, didn't know where I was. And so she went to the post office, and uh, the postmaster said, thank God your husband is driving us crazy And so about this baby. So she sent people out. Everybody went. They went all outside. Somebody found me. I was helping a farmer in a field, and they um, said, Paul, the baby's going to be born. Well, I went, and I got Kathy, and remember, she had her suitcase in that trunk. She was ready to go. And I took her to the Seattle-Tacoma airport, and I put her on a plane. This was something we'd figured out in the in-between time. So she could get there. And so she was flying to Sacramento, and I was flying down I-5. I get to Eugene, Oregon. And back then, if you're too young, we did not have cell phones. You needed to make a phone call. Telephone booth. <laughs> 
Go to a museum sometime. You're, you're, you can do a selfie in the telephone booth. So I, I, I call and I say to the hospital in Woodland, California, this is Paul Wilson. I'm, I'm going to be a dad. We're having a baby. And said, oh, Mr. Wilson, yeah. And she knew all about it. She says, it's getting really close. The baby's, baby's on his way. I fly, I'm back into the car and I am flying down. I get to Grants Pass, Oregon. I go to another telephone booth. I call. I say, this is Mr. Wilson. And, and, and Mr. Wilson, the baby is on its way. It's going to be really, really soon. I, I cross over. The first city in California is Yreka as you're coming down I-5. I go Yreka And um, I, I say, this is, and she said, let me guess, Mr. Wilson. And I said, yeah. Uh, I, I say, and she says, it is really, really close now. Really, the baby is just about there. I, I fly, I get down, I go to Shasta City, and I still remember, it was a convenience store, there's a parking lot, it was foggy, it was at night, and I go, and I, and I dial, and I don't even say anything. The woman says, Mr. Wilson, I have good news for you. You have the most beautiful baby boy. He has dark brown hair, and big brown eyes and my heart was so full and the tears are streaming down my cheeks and I walked out into the parking lot and this made no sense but I wanted to dance and I began to sing and the song I began to sing made no sense and I started dancing strangers in the night exchanging glances and I should have been singing a worship song to God I know but I was just a blithering buffoon with a full heart. I got back in the car. I fly down there. By the way, I made it from Seattle-Tacoma Airport to the hospital in Woodland, Washington in 8 hours and 40 minutes, breaking laws in three states, <laughs> but somewhat pridefully setting a speed record. <laughs> I go up to the third floor, I remember, and... I, uh, the elevator door opens and I'm haggard and rushed and the woman looks at me and she says let me guess, Mr. Wilson <laughs> and she takes me back to the end of the hall and I didn't know how this all worked but you know they gave my wife her own room and I went into the room and there was my wife Kathy in bed with our little boy and I went over to the side of the bed and she held him out and she said, this is our son, Stephen John Wilson. And I reached out my hands, and I held them <laughs> like you're not supposed to hold a baby, I learned later, close to my heart. <laughs> and my heart was so full. And you've had those moments where just time stands still. And I was so grateful to God and all this longing inside of me. And I asked God in that moment, I stopped, what do you want me to know? And what I heard God say is that the way in which I longed to be a father and all the things that it did in my heart was just a faint reflection, a faint echo of how he feels being the father of all of us. You are his dearly loved child. 
and that he wants to be the father of people who don't know him. You get that? So making disciples can sound a little technical. It's about people discovering their true identity and living out this wonder of getting to be children of God. I had the honor of... um, Anybody here ever wanted to uh, vacation in Siberia in winter, by the way? I'm not sure why. I mean, I was kind of born kind of wimpy, you know, swimming pool in Los Altos. But God has called me to do ministry in some pretty tough locations, Siberia, uh, the, uh, the Arctic being a tough location. Well, in the early 1990s, um, I met a remarkable man, and uh, it would take a while to explain it, but I was able to serve him. And he was a Siberian Eskimo, uh, 75 years old. People said he was too old to be used by God. And, but he went through when um, things opened up in the former Soviet Union to the gospel and began to evangelize. And a powerful movement of Jesus Christ took place. And as the new believers were gathered, I had the honor of training the first leaders and we met in Nome, Alaska, one winter, and it was um, uh, just remarkable. It was a uh, group of maybe 30 of the new leaders of the Siberian Yupik Eskimos. Um, the one who had known Jesus the longest at that point would have probably been about two years. And I had the honor um, one day of teaching about the church. The day before, I had been teaching about miracles, and they had lots of evidence. And this happens a lot of times when the gospel is going out into a new area. You see the miracles. But I was teaching about the church, and I, I shared that when we have this new identity, I was using different language, but when we come and we become children of God, there are invisible cords that link us to God. And we can't speak about ourselves anymore without talking about God, that we are a new creation. But something else happens. These invisible cords link us to each other. And so that we become one in the body of Christ. Well, the people were really moved. And one of the leaders, her name was Ludmilla. Ludmilla began to cry, and others began to sob around her, and then Ludmilla um, began to speak very fast, and I was being translated from English into the Siberian Yupik dialect, and she, as I was learning some of their language, they were learning some English, but the people began to say church, and then miracle, which they'd learned that word the day before, church, miracle, church, miracle. And then they began to talk faster and and pointed to Ludmilla and they wanted Ludmilla to say something and church, miracle, because Ludmilla had the best, was developing the best English and can make a short sentence. And so Ludmilla finally stood up and Ludmilla looked at me and she said, church, miracle. And then she began to speak fast and say, 
Paul, when we came to know Jesus and we were born again, we experienced that we were a new creation and we felt like we were like this with, with God. And then we also felt something else. We felt like something happened with us, with each other, even enemies in the same village that somehow we were together and there was something. And now you tell us that when we come to know God, that there's this link, there's these invisible cords. And there are also these invisible cords, not just between us and God, but between each of us who are new creations in Jesus. And she said, the church is miracle. And I've never looked at church the same way since. And what we have here is when you give in and become a child of the Father, all of that longing is realized in that identity and you become linked to him, but we also become linked to each other. Going and making disciples is bringing others into this phenomenal reality of the church being a miracle. Um, because the incline of making disciples is challenging now, in our day, and because we do think about our cities, our, our country, how can we not? We may not realize something. My, uh, my forte is in study is um, history and people movements. And in the, on the best day, you know, in the book of Acts, you have 3,000 people come to Christ. Now, south of the equator and in portions of Asia, portions of Latin America, there are now 3,000 people coming to Christ every day in the world. There has never been a movement of the Spirit of God like there is today. Except I just didn't tell you the whole story. 3,000 people are coming to Christ every day in the world. Actually, 3,000 people, and we're trying not to overstate the numbers, are coming to Christ every hour in the world. It is phenomenal. I have been blessed because um, part of my ministry is equipping leaders as, you know, I, I'm going to get to have this new journey of getting to invest in leaders at GRX, but equipping leaders around the world and I just can't tell you the kinds of things I've seen. Let me just tell you the story of one man and why right now churches like this one, especially churches like this one, now I got goosebumps, can have a disproportional missional contribution than you've ever imagined. There's never been anything like it. So I met a man in Oakland, Jamron Fall. Jamron was living in poverty. This is Jamron. Jamron and I, I've lost a little bit of weight. See, I used to be more of a white whale. <laughs> and Jamron and I, we love to teach together. But I've told Jamron, we have got to work on our cool factor. But Jamron always wants us to wear the same shirts. <laughs> and I say, Jamron, this isn't helping. <laughs> And Jimron says, Paul, I 
I want people to know we are brothers. And, but Jim Rahm is living in po poverty in Oakland, godly and gifted. I'll spare you the details, but I began to serve him and to teach him some of our leadership principles and the rest of been serving Jim Rahm. He got to realize he had been doing evangelism in Cambodia, but I began to train Jamran, and then we trained other leaders who are in Cambodia. And I call this deeper and cheaper. Um, some of the deepest ministry you can do, you don't have to spend a lot of money doing it. You equip leaders. You make disciples. You tell the good news. You, you take the risk of looking foolish. And now um, I got a, a note from Jamran yesterday to give me the update. He's back over there right now. In the last month, over 400 new believers in Cambodia through Jamran's ministry. But let me tell you this. In the last five years, we've planted 67 churches in Cambodia. And I'd like to just show you the pictures to show you just because of what I was just sent yesterday. But I'm, I'm not going to do it. But it is just incredible. This is going to the nations and making disciples. But here's the thing that I have found. The same Jesus is present everywhere. Um, John 5, 17. Jesus says, my father is always at work, even to this day. And I too am working. So I want to talk about where you live, where you work, your home, your life. There isn't a place you can go where God is not always at work. And we need to believe that. You see, sometimes we don't think that God is doing what Jesus promised. But I'm going to say promise. Uh, believe the promises of Jesus. My Father is always at work. And so what we need to do, we never need to pray for God to be present. It's not a bad thing to pray. It's just not theologically accurate. Because Jesus said, we read in the um, passage, I am with you always. He's with us. And when Jesus is with us, he isn't sitting around. He's always at work. Even to this day, my father's at work. Jesus says, and I too am working. So there's no moment in your life. There's no place you can go. And so I want you to hear this. This requires a little bit of spiritual deepening. We need to discern the activity of God. What is it that God's doing? Well, this making disciples, this living out the true identity. You know, a whole lot of this is this message of Jesus, which is the capstone of full gospel spirituality, and it's that we get to love everybody. We get to. We get to love everybody. Um, my friend Jamron, go ahead and put the next uh, slide up. Jamron... Uh, like many Cambodians who are in our church in um, everybody my age group and, you know, 15 years uh, younger, survivors of the Khmer Rouge. And you likely know that between 1975 and 1979, um, two to three million people in Cambodia were killed. It's hard to know the exact numbers. Population was about seven million before the Khmer Rouge, um, a little over four million by the time it came down. Jamran's story is one of losing many family members, um, not enough to eat, 
he was imprisoned and was tortured in some terrible ways. I'm the only one who knows Jim Ron's full story. And we were in Cambodia a few years ago, and I said, uh, Jim Ron, would you like to go back to where you were imprisoned, where all this took place? And he was quiet, and I didn't think I should say anything else. The next day, he said, Paul, I'd like to go back. So we went back, and I was expecting it to be ugly and horrible just because of the nightmares that took place, because I had heard in detail of the beatings, of the mutilations, of the horrible killing at will as weeks dragged into months. I had heard all this. Jamron took me to a place and said, this is where that night I was tortured, and I know what happened on that particular night. And then he pointed out to an irrigation ditch and said that's where it happened. And what he was talking about was one day in which he was beaten, and the beatings were uh, started normally, but he was um, beaten on all his limbs and then uh, beaten till he had lost consciousness, which had happened before, but this time he was put face down in the irrigation ditch. Not too many inches of water, but if he was still alive, the guards thought he was already dead, he would drown. And his brothers were there, and the guards turned, and see, they were beating and killing so many people, they weren't paying that much attention. And his brothers went, and they pulled Jamran out of the ditch, and they carried him off to the side where uh, the guards wouldn't see him. And they brought Jimron to consciousness, and they helped him stand on his feet. And Jimron was not a Christian, but he knew the name of Jesus. And he looked up to heaven, and he cried out, Jesus, save me. And he believed that God spoke to him. And he didn't know the specifics of the gospel, but he believed God spoke to him, and I believe God spoke to him. And this is what Jamron heard from God. You never have to hate again. Now, this is in the middle of all the horrible nightmare of the Khmer Rouge. And Jamron says that he was completely changed. He experienced the power of God. He couldn't explain it but he no longer hated. And when I tell you that Jamron's gone back and we've um, equipped leaders, and part of the reason is there were some missionaries who had trained some leaders in Cambodia, but there was a certain group of leaders that they wouldn't let serve, and those were the females. We actually discovered a few catalytic female church planners who have been incredible. But... The um, thing that I want you to hear is most of the churches have been planted amongst the Khmer Rouge, the people, the culture that did such violence to Jamron personally and to his family and people love. And Jamron, just with joy, feels like I get to love everybody. Can you see his eyes there? That is a guy who's really been touched 
by Jesus, this making disciples, this child that, that God wants, dearly loved children. This is our great honor. We get to love everybody and tell these stories. Well, that um, day as we're standing out there and Ron and I prayed and we took several hours there and mostly we were just quiet. Jamron looked at me and said, Paul, I know where the commandant lives. Now, I know who the commandant is. I know what the commandant does in this season of the 70s. And if you put it into a movie, you would not watch it. There's never been anything of in uh, American cinema that I'm aware of that has depicted a character this evil who carries out evil for weeks and months and years. And Jamron says, I know where he is. Let's take him to dinner and tell him about Jesus. So there we are with the commandant. And I got to tell you, you see the smile on my face? I can fake it. <laughs> I'm just not 100% sure. Because I also, and I still do, I believe in justice. You look at Jamron. That's what it looks like to be fully converted by Jesus Christ. And no wonder God uses him so amazingly. The commandant, by the way, um, enjoyed his dinner. I think he, he looks a little worried. I think he's wondering what the big white guy's doing there. Um, he didn't come become a Christian. Jamron has taken him out to dinner um, since. But I want to tell you, We tend to think superficially about the movement of Jesus Christ and what it means to really live with God and what it means to really be part of a body. Do you get it? It's more than the Covenant Church. It's more than the Pacific Southwest Conference of the Covenant Church. It's more than GRX. We're talking about the eternal purposes of the living God. You are his dearly loved children. He wants to make dearly loved children all around this world. Let's give in to him fully. Would you think creatively? Let, I, I mentioned, and so, and then I'll close, but just so you wonder when I say that you can make a disproportional contribution, it's through relational highways. Ministry has always been done mostly through relational highways, and that's how you, that's how you grow a spiritual community in uh, Santa Clara Valley, through relational highways. But because our relational highways now go around the world, and some of you work internationally, um, the opportunity is staggering. And so some of us have been living this for a while, and it is just staggering. So have big faith. And when Jesus says, go and make disciples, he's talking to you. Father in heaven, thank you for this honor of being with these people here today. And we just ask that you would um, just cause a yieldedness to be in our spirits and one of wonder and hope at your, at your goodness. May we give in to our true identities as your dearly loved children and go and move humbly in our lives uh, nearby and even around the world with the great joy and in the mighty power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray.
Amen.